Hello and welcome to the Grace Place NYC. We are a church in the neighborhood of Hamilton Heights in Harlem. Our purpose is to live for Christ, love the lost, and transform our culture. Good morning, Grace Place NYC, and thank you for joining us on Facebook or YouTube. And happy July 4th weekend. Uh, I know there's so much happening in our country. We're dealing with a global pandemic. We're dealing with uh, social and racial unrest. But, uh, you know, we are blessed uh, to live in this country and enjoy uh, its freedoms. And so hope you're having a great weekend with your family and your friends in a safe way. And uh, I pray that uh, God speaks to you through this message. I believe that I have a message um, uh, specifically for this time and season that God has placed on my heart. So let's pray and then we'll get started. Lord, I just pray that uh, you would speak to us today, open our hearts and our minds to hear what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're continuing our series, As for Me and My House, today. And uh, we're actually ending the series today. And so we're in part three today. And uh, in this series, we are attempting to identify how we are going to respond as a church to what's happening in our country. Um, we're dealing, like I mentioned earlier, we're dealing with so much racial tension, social unrest, global pandemic, um, just people completely divided on both sides, um, you know, and, and so we're in a really um, interesting time in our country, um, but I believe that, um, you know, I, I believe that God has a plan, but currently we are, if I'm being honest, I feel like our country is at a boiling point. You know, when you're boiling water on the stove and you, you're, you know, you've, you've turned it on and you've got the pot with the water on it, and then you start to see those little bubbles, and you know, at any moment, the water can, is going to start boiling and you're going to start seeing those big bubbles. I feel like right now that's where our country's at. I feel like we're in a boiling point. Um, you know, and, and with that being said, the church has a very, very important job right now. It is our responsibility to represent Jesus and represent heaven here on earth because, like we talked about last week, we are first and foremost... We are citizens and representatives of heaven. We are representatives of our King Jesus here on earth. And so I believe that as um, crazy as, as things are in our country right now, the church has a really, really important job to represent Christ. And I believe that in this time and in this season, the church can exponentially grow if we take our responsibility seriously. The term, as for me and my house, comes from Joshua chapter 24 and verse number 15, where he tells the Israelites in his farewell address, as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. And I'm calling on every single person who calls the Grace Place NYC their home to declare this over their lives and to declare this over their families. This morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter number 25. And in this chapter, Jesus is finishing up what uh, biblical scholars call the Olivet Discourse. This is Jesus' last sermon before he is arrested. 
And it's taking place at the Mount of Olives as he's on his way to a town called Bethany. And his disciples ask him when the end of the world was going to happen and when he was going to come back to rule and reign and glory. And within that context, Jesus preaches a sermon that spans uh, Matthew chapters 24 and 25. And he's basically warning believers that no one except the Father knows when I'm coming back. And so um, your responsibility is to be ready and stay ready. And as you're going to see, this warning to be ready does not mean we need to hide in some bunker nervously waiting for him to return. That's not what Jesus is saying. So Matthew chapter 25, we're going to start with verse number 31 and and we're going to read 15 verses. So it will be up on the screen for you to read along. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? Verse 39, when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. Verse 44, They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger and needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, Whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. As for me and my house, we will do to the least of these. Are you a goat or a sheep? As you look at this passage of scripture that I just read, notice the separation that happens. We see a separation between genuine believers and fake believers here. And Jesus is the judge between them. This passage is talking about the second coming of Jesus after the tribulation. We have Jesus and then we have three different groups of people in this story. So we have Jesus that is stated that he is seated on his throne. Then we have the angels that surround him. Then we have all the nations of the world, all the nations of the world that are gathered before Jesus as he is on the throne. And finally, we have the brothers and sisters who Jesus refers to in verse number 40. And Jesus separates the nations that are surrounded uh, before him, that are gathered before him. He, He separates them into two different groups, calling one group sheep and another group goats. Up until this point, both groups claim to know Christ as their personal Savior and 
they, they consider themselves Christians. But then Jesus brings forth a judgment and puts the sheep to his right hand, which is a place of honor, and places the goats to his left hand, which consequently is the place of dishonor. I know that this separation has so many more ramifications and, and is so much more serious than the example I'm going to share with you. But you remember in American Idol, um, when they do their performances and then they bring, uh, bring back the performers and they set them up in groups up on the stage and then the, the judges will say, you know, Pam, Steve, Priscilla, Christian, Ticho, um, Jema, you all take one step forward. And then there's this awkward silence and the judges are staring at the contestants. The contestants are staring back. And then the judge, one of the judges will say, the, the people in the front of the line, you are moving forward in the competition. And for those of you in the back, I'm sorry, but this is the end of the road for you. Uh, you are finished. And we see the front row in elation, celebrating, happy, shedding tears of joy while the people in the back, they're sad, they're discouraged, they're broken, and they're shedding tears of sorrow. I know it's an imperfect example, but it's all I've got. But this is a little bit like the separation that's happening in this chapter as we see the, uh, as we see the sheep and the goats separated. In this passage, excuse me, in this passage, the sheep inherit eternal life in Jesus forever, while the goats inherit eternal punishment separated from Jesus in hell forever. But what is the reason for the separation? Is it a lack of scripture memorization? Is it a lack of faith on the part of the goats? Is it a lack of prayer? They didn't pray enough? Um, what is the reason for this separation that's taking place? Well, Jesus tells us when he says to the sheep group, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you helped me. I was in prison and you came and visited me. The sheep group look at King Jesus on his throne in all of his glory, surrounded by legions of angels and probably a bit confused, say, Lord, what, when did we see you in any of these circumstances and situations and do these things for you? I, I don't remember ever seeing you in this position. The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then Jesus turns to the goat group and says to them, when I was hungry and thirsty and without clothes, sick, homeless, and in prison, you did nothing for me. You looked the other way. You ignored me. You walked on the other side of the street. And the goats, equally confused, say, Jesus, when did we ever see you with these conditions? When did we ever see you homeless or without clothes or sick or in prison or any of those things? He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Wow. If any of us believe or think that what we do here on this earth after salvation doesn't matter, 
then we are completely deceived. According to Jesus Christ himself, one of the ways that you know that you are saved and have been adopted into the family of God is whether you engage the poor, is whether you have a heart for the poor and the needy and the less fortunate. This parable is dealing with the fruit of salvation, not the root of salvation. We know that salvation is a gift from God that we receive by grace alone, through faith alone, and not from our good works. We cannot earn salvation. It is the free gift of God that we receive by faith. But the fruit that you have been changed by the grace of God is engaging in the plight of the poor with a Christ-centered compassion and Christ-centered generosity. Jesus is teaching us here that looks can be deceiving. What I mean by that is not everyone who claims to know Christ is a genuine believer. There are fake Christians in the church. It's kind of like gluten-free brownies or cookies. They look like the real thing, but once you take a bite, you know that that is not a real brownie. Whatever they took out of that took all the flavor and the yumminess completely out of that. There are people that go to churches all over the world that look the part, but Christ is not truly in their heart. There are people in small groups and worship teams and preaching teams and pastors of churches and greeters and outreach directors and, and, and people that serve on all, in all of these areas in church that, that aren't true, genuine followers of Jesus. There are folks who consider themselves Christian because their family is Christian, but they don't have a true, personal, genuine relationship with Christ. There are folks who attend church regularly back when we were attending church in person because it is the cultural thing to do, but they don't really know Christ. And you can tell because there's no fruit in their lives. Faith, listen to this church, faith is what brings us into the kingdom, Ephesians chapter 2. But fruit is what identifies whether the kingdom is inside of us or not. Let me say that again. Faith is what brings us into the kingdom, but fruit is what identifies whether the kingdom is inside of us or not. A saving faith is a serving faith. If Jesus is living inside of you and the Spirit of God indwells you, then you should have fruit as evidence of that in your life. James, the brother of Jesus, puts it this way in the book of James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, a fruitless faith is a dead faith. Our family enjoys going apple picking in, in, in the fall in upstate New York. We, uh, we usually um, do that every, every fall and we'll go and we'll pick apples, we'll take pictures, and we'll make a, a whole day of it. And in that apple orchard, uh, there are hundreds of different apple trees and they're all situated in different groups. And in those different groups are different types of apples. So you have a section of, of the orchard where it's all Granny Smith apples or Prince, uh, Prince apples or Honeycrisp apples or Fuji, just to name a few. And, uh, 
my wife, she actually knows like a hundred different types of apples. I have no idea where she acquired this knowledge or why she has this knowledge. But uh, I was asking her about the different types of apples and she would just started naming off all these different apples and I jotted down four of them here, but she would just kept going. So don't know why she knows all that, but she does. She's an apple connoisseur evidently. So yeah, uh, hypothetically say um, next time we go out apple picking, we are going throughout the orchard and we're going from tree to tree and the kids are getting apples. We're getting apples, putting them in our bag. And then we come across a tree that looks um, it looks kind of like the other trees, except when you look at the fruit, they're not apples, they're oranges. Now, they're surrounded by other apple trees. They're in the middle of an apple orchard, orchard, and, and it's part of the experience as you are apple picking. Now, would I look at that tree, that orange tree, and say, well, it's surrounded by apples, it's in an apple orchard, so it's got to be an apple tree? No, of course not. You would say that was an orange tree because of the fruit. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 20 that you will know a true believer by their fruit. Yes. The fruit Jesus refers to in this particular passage is how we engage the poor and needy among us. That's the fruit that Jesus is talking about in this particular passage. So, how does God view the poor? Well, let's turn to the scriptures to see. This is a very important question because one of the ways we're going to be held accountable when Christ comes back is by how we treated and engaged the poor. So we better understand through God's word what he feels, how he feels about the poor. And he has a lot to say about the poor. Psalm 113 verses 7 and 8, he says, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. Isaiah 41, 17 says, The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst. But I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. If the Bible is clear on God's heart for the poor, then why would there be so many people on that judgment day? cast into eternal fire for not helping the poor and the needy? Could the reason lie with how people view poverty and the poor? What I mean by that is this. I've been conditioned for most of my life to believe that people are poor primarily because they're lazy or they're addicted to some sort of substance and they don't want to work. That's what, um, that's what I grew up uh, conditioned to believe. That's what I was taught. That's what I believed in my heart. Uh, I used to think that the Bible taught that the only reason for poverty is laziness and not wanting to work. We've all seen those 2020 specials where there are people that pose as if they are homeless and they collect money from people while they're living in luxury in these big houses, driving these fancy cars. We've all seen those, those specials, those shows. And because of these conditionings and stereotypes, some people are against helping the poor. Some people look down upon and have disdain for poor people. Some people make it about themselves and say things like, I'm barely making it myself. Why should I help poor people? While scripture does teach that laziness results in poverty, there is an abundance of scripture that talks about another cause for poverty. Do you know what that is? You might not have ever heard heard it this way, but the other cause that the Bible talks about 
that is the cause of poverty is oppression. For instance, the writer of Ecclesiastes says this in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all, and the king himself profits from the fields. The writer of Ecclesiastes tells us not to be surprised when you see poverty caused by oppression and injustice and because rights are being taken away from the poor because there is probably a system in place. One person is eyed by a higher one and over them both others higher still. There's probably a system in place that leads to the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. Isaiah chapter 10 verses 1 and 2 says this, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights, and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. God has a heart for the poor. God has a heart for the oppressed. God's heart breaks when there are unjust laws in place that keep people oppressed. God's heart breaks when there is justice withheld from people that keep them down and keep them struggling and keep them oppressed. These are just two of many scriptures talking about the oppression of the poor. Now, knowing that people's attitudes towards the poor are often one of pointing the finger or feeling contempt, in the passage we read earlier in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus does something so fascinating. And I don't know if you picked up on it or not. After Jesus commends the group of people for looking after him when he was in need, they asked him, Lord, when did we ever do this for you? When did we ever do the, these kinds of things that you're telling us that we did? And Jesus' answer was, when you did it for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did it for me. Think about this. Jesus is the king exacting judgment in this story, yet he identifies the poor and the needy as his own brothers and sisters, okay? And beyond that, he identified himself with the poor when he said, to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine that you did these things to, so you did it to me. Jesus is identifying with these poor people. He is identifying himself. The king that is exacting judgment is identifying with the poor, with the needy, with the imprisoned, with, with, with the sick, with the down and out. The king, the one that is in charge, he is identifying here with the poor and the needy. God not only has a heart for the poor and the oppressed and needy, he identifies them. And if we separate ourselves from the poor and needy among us, Jesus will separate himself from us. I want to be ready for Christ's second coming. And, but being ready, like I mentioned earlier, doesn't mean hiding in a bunker somewhere, biting your fingernails because the world is so bad, pun intended, that we, we're, we're just hiding away, waiting for Christ to return. That, that, that's not what being ready for the second coming is. When he comes back for his bride, we should be found boldly and confidently representing him here on this earth. 
not like the servant who hid his talent in the ground, who buried his talent in the ground waiting for his master to come back. No, we should be found helping those who are hurting. We should be found helping those that are oppressed. We should be found speaking up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. We should be found defending those who have had their rights taken from them. That's how we should be found when Jesus comes back for his bride. We should be found ministering to the poor, oppressed, and needy. When we launched the West Harlem Relief Fund, many of you gave generously, and I'm so grateful for you because of this outreach led by Willie and Martine and Nora who went out and delivered groceries to needy families at the height of the pandemic, we were able to bless around 50 families with groceries and necessities during the height of the coronavirus in New York City. Families that had lost their jobs, families that were sick with the virus, families who were financially struggling and, and didn't know how they were going to get groceries and food. We were able to bless them, not once, not even twice. We were able to bless them multiple times, and, and we were able to, to, to show the love of Jesus to them in a tangible way. You guys up to this point have given close to $4,000 through the West Harlem Relief Fund, and I want to thank you for that. And I want to encourage you to keep giving towards the Harlem Relief Fund because there might be, come a time where, uh, who knows? Who knows what, what's going to happen? There are still families in need. And who knows if there's going to be a second wave of the virus where people are, are you know, in that predicament again. And, and we as the church, we need to be ready and prepared to help people and serve people. This is why the church exists. If we have anyone in our church family who is struggling and in need of help, it is our responsibility as the local church to help meet that need. To, to, if, if it's at all possible, we need to be the ones taking responsibility and saying, hey, this person's struggling right now. Uh, we're going to pool our resources together and we're going to try and help this person. That's what the, the uh, New Testament church did, the early church did. They pooled their uh, resources together to help people. Um, Acts chapter 4, starting with verse 33, says this, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Let's be a people who are ready for Christ's return. Let's be a people who aren't found with closed fists and closed homes when there are poor and needy and hurting people around us and among us. Let's not separate ourselves from the oppressed, but identify with them and be generous towards them and speak up on their behalf the way Jesus did. Our heart should be one of generosity to the poor because that's God's heart. So as I pull into the parking space today, I want to close with this question. Who is the least of these in your life? Who is the needy in your life? What practical needs can you meet for someone in your life and show the love of Jesus to? Are we leaving margin in our budgets to help those in need? You know, God told the Israelites in the Old Testament that when they harvested their crops, 
to leave the corners of their fields um, unharvested and, and, and to purposefully, when, they're, when they were uh, harvesting their crops, to, to, to drop some of their crops on the ground and, and not to pick them up so that the foreigner and so that the poor among them could come and have food to eat. You know, we, we don't, I don't think any of us watching today or any of us a part of a church that I know of are actual farmers that own fields. But the equivalent in our world is, are we leaving margin intentionally and on purpose in our budgets to be able to help someone in need? Just like we budget for uh, food for the month, just like we budget for our bills for the month, just like we budget for recreational use. Are we budgeting a, a set amount of money? Are we putting money aside so that we can give to the poor? If we're not, I think we should. I think we need to start because we need to be ready in season and out of season. If someone is in need and we're able to help them, we need to have it in our budgets and in our hearts to say, you know what? I am the representative of Christ here on earth. I am a citizen of heaven living here on earth. And so... I am going to be generous and I am going to help those that are oppressed, those that are in need. I think that's so, so important. So as we close out this series today, let me ask you this again. Who is the least of these in your life? We all have someone in our lives that are struggling. We all have those people in our lives that are, maybe they've lost a job, maybe they're financially struggling because of something, maybe because of systems in place, they're oppressed. In church, we shouldn't wait for the government to do something. We, we shouldn't wait for another program to come along. We, as the church, we need to do our part. And that starts with Allowing our hearts to be stirred with what stirs God's heart. And God has a heart for the poor. So I want to encourage you, church, to take on the same heart that God has. Let's pray. Thank you for being with us at TGP NYC. You can listen to other sermons on Spotify or wherever else podcasts are available. For further details about the Grace Place, please visit tgp.nyc.